Today's um, passage is in Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through to 7. Um, right at the beginning of the Bible. Genesis chapter 3, verses 1 through to 7. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, Did God actually say, You shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, We may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden. But God said, You shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden. Neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, You will not surely die. For God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. Then the eyes of both were opened and they knew that they were naked and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning, everybody. Um, if you haven't met, my name's Sam. I'm one of the pastors here, and it's, it's my privilege to get to preach um, this morning. I'm going to pray, and then I'll kind of introduce where we're at in this kind of series that we've, we just began two weeks ago. So let me, let me pray. Heavenly Father, come before your word now. And we are so needy for anything lasting to happen. We're so needy of your spirit to make your word alive to us. And give us that spirit of adoption where we might cry out, Abba, Father, that each one of us would know deeper of the Father's love and so please, we pray, please do that work this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. amen. So two weeks ago, we did begin a series, and the series, and, and we're kind of continuing it for the next three weeks, okay? So there's one and then two more. And the series is called Walking with God, coming at a kind of questions that I think are very common for the Christian, in the Christian life, questions along the line of, like, what does it mean to have, like, communion with God? What does it mean to have like no deep fellowship with God? So I, I, maybe I know how I become a Christian, like I, I get, I kind of understand the gospel, I understand how you begin as a Christian, but what does the Christian life look like? What does it mean that I actually get to grow in deeper and deeper fellowship with God? And it was J.I. Packer's concern, I don't know if you remember the quote, but it was J.I. Packer's concern that if you actually listen to uh, some of the conversations that you hear Christians have, if you listen to our sermons, if you read our books, then you might, come, you might come have the sense that we are very concerned about a number of things, things such as you know, different doctrines that are in the Bible. We have, we have concerns about the world around us. We have concerns about Christian culture. We have you know, perhaps concerns around all these you know, techniques within the church and all that kind of thing. 
But he says this, that we might have but little concern for the Christian's daily experience of God. So he concluded with these words, Thus we make it plain that communion with God is a small thing to us. Communion with God might be, actually be a small thing to us. I was thinking of uh, that, that, that profound moment in Exodus chapter 33 where, you know, after Israel's idolatry at the foot of Mount Sinai where they worship the golden calf and God comes to Moses and, and speaks to him and he says these words, uh, I'm paraphrasing, but he says basically, go, depart from here, go. Go to the promised land. Go now, go to that land flowing with milk and honey. Go now, leave this place. And you know what? I'm going, to, I'm going to send an angel and he's going to go before you and he will defeat all of your enemies. You will be able to have that place. It's a wonderful place, a place flowing with milk and honey, he says. You'll have it all. You'll have victory over all of your enemies. But then God says this, but I will not go up among you. What will they say? Is that a good deal? They go, that's pretty good. A victory over all of our enemies. We get, to, we get to live in the promised land. It's a fertile land. We'll be able to be prosperous. We'll have all kind of victory in our lives. Is that a good deal? It says this, that when they heard this, quote, disastrous word, they mourned. Disastrous? That's a disastrous word. You get to have the land. All your enemies gone. The angel's going up ahead of you. You get to have everything, just not God. And in a moment of profound wisdom, they said, no, that is a disastrous word. What good is Canaan? What good is prosperity? What good is victory over our, all of our enemies if you are not with us? Martin Lloyd-Jones on that passage said this, that there is nothing which is so serious as to be without the presence of God. And yet J.I. Packer, the great J.I. Packer might say, do we think it's a small thing? A small thing? The psalmist writes things like, as a deer pants for flowing streams, so pants my soul for you, O God. My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. God says in Jeremiah 9 verse 23, let not the wise man boast in his wisdom. Let not the mighty man boast in his might. Let not the rich man boast in his riches, but let him who boasts boast in this, that he understands and knows me. If the wisest person in the world the mightiest person in the world, the richest person in the world, in the whole world. You've got nothing to boast in. You know who does? The humble Christian, the lowly Christian who knows and understands God. So in the first sermon, two weeks ago, we laid the foundations for the kind of three weeks that we're headed into. And the foundation for our communion, our walk with God was simply this. Have you first of all been reconciled to God? Are your sins forgiven? Have you been saved? Like that notoriously famous sinful woman who came in into that meeting that Jesus was having at the Pharisee's house, weeping. But she came to him and her sins were forgiven because she had faith in the Lord Jesus and it led to deep desires for communion with him. Jesus says she loves much. Have you come to the Lord Jesus like that? 
Have you turned from your sin and put your faith in Him? Have you been reconciled to God? Well, that becomes the very foundation and the very motive for our desire to walk with Him, to know Him, to have deep fellowship and communion with Him. This is not an offer that's only given to kind of some Christians, you know, the, the especially mature Christians, the kind of the more kind of the elite squad of Christians, right? People in ministry or something like that. No, it's the right of every Christian. Why? Because when you become a Christian... We'll see this today. We are not just forgiven of our sins. We are adopted as daughters, sons of God. He becomes our father. Fellowship with him is for every single Christian. So we've got two things going on which we can't mix. We have our salvation, which of course is purely of grace. It's God at work. It's not, we are saved by grace apart from our works. Our salvation doesn't kind of ebb and flow throughout the day. One day we're kind of adopted and loved son, and the next day we're kind of orphaned, but then we're back in and we're adopted and we're loved. It was one day we're the friends of God, and the next day we're actually his enemies, but then we become his friends. No, that's not what happens in our salvation. That is static. It is stable. But then on that comes our communion with God, which actually is a two-way street. That, 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 that we know something of deeper and deeper fellowship with God. That there are things that we can do in our lives which foster fellowship with God and our walk with God. And there are things that we can do which, will, we can, which can hinder that. So how are we going to talk? We, we're going to talk about walking with God. You might go, okay, what's the angle? Because there's, there's different angles you could take. One angle might be we could just talk about spiritual disciplines, right? We could talk about prayer. We could talk about Bible reading. We could talk about quiet times. We could talk about fasting. We could talk about journaling. There's a place for all of those things. I think Nate, was it last week, last year? We did a, a whole equip series Sunday mornings before church on spiritual discipline. So if you want to know more about that, ask Nate for all those notes. Excellent stuff. There's a place for that. But another way to come at this, and it really must come first, and it really actually must be the purpose of all of those disciplines, and that is to dive deep into a knowledge of the heart of God, to know who He is and what He is like. So like we're talking about, you know, as an illustration, we're talking about marriage, you might say, we're going to talk about intimacy in marriage. What we could begin with is like, okay, we well, should be doing these kind of date nights and you should give flowers and you should write notes and all of those. Well, that would be like talking about spiritual disciplines. But first, you've got to know who that person is. In fact, all those things are for the purpose of knowing who they are, what they are like, their heart, the nature of the marriage relationship. So I know that Kylan, my wife, she likes flowers, but she loves handwritten notes, right? And so just imagine I did that, right? I, um, just imagine. Imagine I... <laughs> imagine what a, <laughs> it's hard to picture. But here it is. I, I, so I got some flowers and, um, and I wrote a note, right? And you might go, you can't lose. Sam, excellent job. So she likes flowers, she likes notes, you did both of those. But what if I got her flowers, actually that she hates those flowers. She hates the smell, she's, maybe she's allergic to them. And that in the note, I began to write to her and I wrote things like, babe, I love you, you know. And I don't know what it is right now. I don't know what, whether, it's, whether it's your red hair, you know, whether it's um, how much you love pork, whether it's how much you love your love for winter, you know, how you hate summer. I don't know what it is, you know, whether it's just how low energy you are all the time, whether that's the thing that I love about you, but I mean, I just, I just love you right now. Well, it might not go so well uh, because 
She's got blonde hair. She never puts pork on her fork. She thinks humidity is great, somehow. And she's got a bit of energy. But I say, but I did the things, right? I did the flower thing and I wrote the note. What do you mean? I did the things. And they go, no, you would say, no, Sam, you do not know her. You cannot have communion with her because communion must first flow out of a deep knowledge of, understanding of. It must be the purpose of all of these other things. Do you know her heart? So God says, let him who boasts, boasts in this, that he understands and knows me. Do you know him? J.I. Packer wrote a famous a classic book, Knowing God, and he began by quoting the introduction of a sermon by C.H. Spurgeon, great preacher. And it goes like this, it says, um, Spurgeon said, It has been said by someone that the proper study of mankind is man. I will not oppose the idea, but I believe it is equally true that the proper study of God's elect is God. The proper study of a Christian is the Godhead. The highest science, the loftiest speculation, the mightiest philosophy, which can ever engage the attention of a child of God is the name, the nature, the person, the work, the doings, and the existence of the great God whom he calls his Father. He goes on to speak about the practical benefits of this. He says, Oh, there is in contemplating Christ a balm for every wound. In musing on the Father, there is a quietus for every grief. And in the influence of the Holy Ghost, there is a balsam for every sore. Would you lose your sorrow? Would you drown your cares? Then go, plunge yourself in the Godhead's deepest sea. Be lost in his immensity. And you shall come forth as from a couch of rest, refreshed and invigorated. I know nothing which can so comfort the soul, so calm the swelling billows of sorrow and grief, so speak of the winds of trial, so, so speak peace to the winds of trial as a devout musing upon the subject of the Godhead. That's what we're doing in this series. A musing on the subject of the Godhead. For three weeks. And we're going to take as our kind of structure Paul's benediction that he gives to the Corinthian church at the very end of 2 Corinthians, this benediction where he said this, he, he said this prayer for them, that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. So that's week one, talking about the love of God the Father. Next week, the grace of the Son, the Lord Jesus Christ. And finally, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit. Since God is revealed in the Bible as a triune God, there is, that is, that He's one God, one essence, yet existing in three persons, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, it's not surprising that our fellowship with God, our walking with God, might take on a triune shape. Just think about, for a second, how the whole Christian life actually begins. Well, think about the Great Commission, where Jesus says, Go into all the world, make disciples. And what do you do when they become Christians? You give them the sign, the covenant sign of baptism. And what, are, what is the name in which you are baptized into? It is the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. The whole Christian life begins in our fellowship with the triune God. So we have to get this kind of couple pieces clear on the Trinity before we get into it. And that, that while God is one, 
And of course, he always acts as one. So in a sense, you could say to know one person of the Trinity is to know all the Trinity. That is, the, so Jesus will say things like, you, if you have seen me, you have seen the Father. Like I and the Father are one. Or to, to, to experience the ministry of the Holy Spirit is actually to experience the ministry of the Father and Son who sent the Holy Spirit to, to reveal to us the goodness of the Father and the Son. So whilst God is one and, and acts as one like that, there are ways we relate to each person which can take a unique shape. For example, when it comes to the work of redemption, we don't thank the Father for dying for us. Sometimes that accidentally happens. We begin praying to the Father and suddenly we're thanking Him for dying for us. That's a heresy called patripassianism. We ought to avoid that if we can. No, we don't thank the Father for dying for us. We thank the Son. But in the work of redemption, the Father's not uninvolved. We thank the Father for sending the Son. We thank the Holy Spirit for, for being with the Son, for sustaining the Son on the cross, for revealing the Son to us. Sinclair Ferguson writes, Our experience of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit is shaped by the specific role that each plays in relationship to our lives and especially to our salvation. So I think that's what Paul's getting at. In 2 Corinthians, right at the very end, last sentence, he's writing to them and he says to them that the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit would be with them. Be with them. So that the, so the Father is mediated to us primarily through love. It's not that the Son and the Spirit don't love us, but that the Father is primarily mediated to us in love. And that the Son is primarily mediated to us through grace. Of course, the Father and the Spirit are gracious. But it's primarily for the Son and the Spirit, whose ministry is primarily one of fellowship. In the 4th century, Gregory of Nazianzus wrote these really helpful words for us to keep in mind. He said, I cannot think on the one without quickly being circled by the splendor of the three. Nor can I discern the three without being straightaway carried back to the one. So let's begin. The love of the Father. Great Puritan um, John Owen wrote these words. He said, The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to Him is not to believe that He loves you. Think that's right? Is that how you would have ended that sentence? The greatest sorrow and burden, the greatest unkindness you can do to the Father? How would you naturally finish that sentence? John Owen says, it's not to believe that he loves you. Not to believe that? Let's go to our passage in Genesis and let's see. We are landing in the Garden of Eden on the day that sin enters the world. You just try to feel the weight and the gravity of that. This is that day. Sin enters into the world. The crisis moment is presented to Adam and to Eve in the garden. Will they, in this moment, which way will they go? Will they trust God? Will they banish the serpent from the, from the garden? Will they trust God in His Word and know His love and follow Him? Thus, inherit eternal life eat from the tree of life? Or will they rebel? Will they believe the lie and therefore bring on the curse of death? 
I mean, leading up to this moment, and it's helpful to know kind of just something of, of what's happened. There's only been a couple chapters in Genesis, but if you just read it, you, you, would, you would look back and see, man, God has been abundantly generous to them. They are the pinnacle of God's creation, male and female. Adam is made from the ground with the personal, through the personal breath of God. They are created in God's image. No one else is. That is to be in special covenant relationship with God. They are given a kingly rule over the earth under God. That is, they are to have dominion over, over all things, all living things. Adam is placed in this, this, so he wasn't created in the garden, but he's placed into this garden paradise, the original land flowing with milk and honey. Genesis 2 verse 9 says that God brought up from the ground trees pleasant to look at. He's just like, I'm going to make this garden just absolutely beautiful. Like, just imagine the most astounding trees you've ever seen. God just raised them up for them to look at. And then it says there was just all these trees that were good for food for them to eat. And then Adam's not left alone, but God brings along Eve. And he says, Eve, and he's like, at last. And, and they are there and they can rule as king and queen, if you like having dominion over this, this, this world that God has created. They can fulfill the mandate that God gave them to be fruitful and to multiply. They got everything. He's been over the top generous. Above all these blessings, far and above even all of these blessings, it is the place and they get to dwell where God dwells. The garden is like a temple and they are priests called to, to keep and to maintain and to watch over and keep pure that garden. The Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein put it like this. He said, The original covenant order, that it's just speaking about Adam and Eve in the garden, was thus everywhere one of beatitude, blessing. For there in the garden, the Creator raised His hands over man in protective, prospering benediction. It was a place of total, unmixed blessing, generosity, blessing. There was one restrictive command given. Only one of all that. And to my mind, it's like, it's like the smallest restriction you could possibly have in a garden like this. Right? It goes like this. Genesis 2 verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, for in the day that you eat of it you shall surely die. It's like eat of every tree every tree. It's not like there's like four trees, you know. It's like you've got, I imagine, hundreds of trees, but don't eat from this one. Why? Well, at least one, because God said so, but it's, it has to be a, a, a kind of message to them and a, a reminder. Though you are, have dominion over this world, you don't have total dominion. Only God has total dominion. Only God has authority over everything. So here's a tree that you do not get to eat from. It is the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, and only God has that ultimate total knowledge. So a passage begins. Have, you pa have the passage in front of you. Passage is Genesis 3, verse 1. After all of that, here it comes. Now the serpent was cra more crafty than any other beast of the field that the Lord God had made. So the serpent seems to be an apt manifestation for Satan because, why? It says it's crafty. 
I don't know what it was about the serpent, whether it was this kind of camouflage ability or just kind of the way it kind of moves, sinuous movement, but it, it kind of was, it was just like an apt way for Satan to come because it was, it was known to be kind of crafty. But it, match, it matched Satan's designs, isn't it? So if, the, if Satan's going to use the serpent, the serpent's crafty, you just, you just know that Satan's not going to walk up to them and go, yo, Eve, I'm thinking, you should reject God, worship me, and let's just destroy this whole world. Probably not the way he's going to do it. It's going to be crafty. But you wonder, how's he going to do it? How's he going to do what he wants to do, which is put a rift between people and God, when God has just been so generous to them? He's so been so abundant blessings towards them. How's he going to do it? Actually, well, there's, if he was going to do it, he would probably use the one command that was a restriction. Meredith Klein writes, for it could plausibly be so misconstrued as to cloud man's confidence in the Lord's benevolence. So he said to the woman, it says, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? See how it's crafty? It's like, because, you know, it doesn't come out and say it. It's like, hey, I was just asking, you know, it's like, I'm just asking a question. Like, you go, it's just an innocent question. Is it true that you're not allowed to eat any of the trees? Well, notice the word actually. Did God actually say? It's not an innocent question, is it? It's crafty. It's got a hint of skepticism, even surprise. Did God actually say? He actually said, you can't eat anything? Which, of course, is absurd. As if to say, if he says you can't eat one thing, it's basically saying you can't eat anything. You know, it's like, <laughs> we do that, don't we? Like, kids do that. It's like, you know, parents know this. The kid's like, man, I just really want another lollipop. You know, it's like, no, you don't get another lollipop. You never give me anything. It's like, <laughs> you know, you're wearing clothes. You know, it's like, that cupboard of toys, that was me, you know. But we do that with God. Oh, he says, oh, he said no to one thing. Oh, he never gives me anything. He doesn't understand. He's not generous. You see how the question is not really a question about the tree and whether it's okay to eat from it. It's a question about the character of someone who would put in restrictions at all into your life. It insinuates something about God, that he's actually not benevolent, that he's not generous, that actually planting the seed, God is a restricting God. He's a keeping God. He keeps to himself. He's a controlling God. He's not a loving God. He's actually a very hard taskmaster, isn't he, this God who put you in this garden? Sinclair Ferguson writes, For the serpent's question carried a deeply sinister innuendo. What kind of God would deny you pleasure and joy if he really loved you? He allows you nothing, and yet he demands that you obey him. So then verse 2. And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. So she corrects the characterization of God's command, says, no, actually, we're allowed to eat, we're pretty much allowed to eat all the trees. We're just not allowed to eat this one tree. But notice she adds something to God's word. She says, nor even touch it. God didn't say that. But maybe it is a revelation of some bitterness inside us. Like, we don't even get to touch that fruit, you know. What point is, what point is there in touching fruit that you can't eat anyway? You're just going to grab it and walk around with it all day. It's not going to go anywhere good. But you can tell she's, there's resentment. Verse 4, But the serpent said to the woman, 
you will not surely die. So first he brought into question the goodness of God. Now he brings into question the authority, the integrity of God. You will not surely die. There is no covenant curse for sin. There is no judgment. There are no consequences for disobedience. Can you hear the hiss of the serpent in your ear even today? There is no judgment. Well, then why would God say you would die if you would not surely die? Well, the devil explains God's motives. Verse 5, 4, God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. You see? It's all about the character of God. That's what, he's, that's what he's trying to bring into question. He's not a generous God. He's a keeping God. He doesn't love you. He doesn't want you to know what he knows. He doesn't want you to be like him. He lies and he gives empty threats to keep you from having a full life. You know we believe that every time we sin? You would never say that. But as you sin and you choose that way and God has said don't, you are saying, you don't love me. You would not keep that from me. You are not a generous God. You cannot be trusted on this. I must go my own way on this. I will trust myself. So then taking the fruit is not just a chance to kind of eat nice fruit. He's like, I just really love that fruit. What, the, what Satan is saying is to eat that fruit is actually a chance to take life into your own hands. You can be God yourself. You can be like him. Total dominion without any restrictions, not even a single tree outside of your dominion. You can know right from wrong. Of course they already knew right from wrong. They're made in God's image. They knew it was wrong to eat the tree. They knew right from wrong. But then they didn't know it in one sense, at least, did they? They didn't know it experientially. They'd never themselves become workers of evil, but they would if they ate. And see how everything's getting turned upside down, hey? You've seen what God is like this whole time. Here comes Satan, and he just tries to flip everything, doesn't he? Now suddenly Satan's the one who's the giving one. Satan's the generous one. Satan's the one who loves them most and is most concerned for them to reach their full potential in this world. Again, Klein. Sorry, there's more quotes than normal. But, man, they say it so well. Better than I could. Meredith Klein writes this. He says, With subtle artistry, the devil painted a complete falsehood, a total distortion of reality, portraying God in his own devil likeness and representing himself in the guise of divine virtue and prerogative. You see that? He's flipped it. God is the deceiver now. And Satan is the giver and the lover. Verse 6. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was a delight to the eyes, and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and she also gave some to her husband who was with her, and he ate. That's her response. Again, Klein explains it. He says, Although Satan had now blatantly accused the Creator, the one who is light and love, of being in fact darkness and hate, the woman did not react to the blasphemy with shock and abhorrence. Instead, she was attracted by the evil spell. She thought in her heart, he's right, you know. He's right, I think. 
If God really loved me, he would let me have, he would let me have that. He is keeping from me, God is. He doesn't love me like the serpent does. And so she begins to see the world in her own authority instead of God's word and his authority. Do you notice? God has kept from us. I think this tree is actually a lot like all the other trees. She says, it is good to eat. It is, it is a delight to the eyes. I don't think it does bring death. What does she say? It'll make me wise. This fruit is no longer forbidden fruit, she says, but it's actually to be desired. Sinclair Ferguson used this illustration, you know, of how one small object, if it's put right in front of your face, can block out really big objects behind it, right? And it's like Satan has brought this tree, this one tree, right in front, and all she can see is that fruit. And she cannot see all the other fruit, all the generosity. All she can see is this. She quite literally can't see the forest for the tree. She exchanged the truth about God, that he is, he is generous, he is good and loving and truthful, and she exchanged the truth for a lie, that he is restrictive, selfish, keeps to himself, can't be trusted, and doesn't love. And this, brothers and sisters, has been the, the default human position ever since towards God. A skepticism about his character. A divorce between his character and his laws. If he says this, then he mustn't be loving. The God now is an overbearing type police officer with just arbitrary laws. He is an enemy to my joy with all of his commands. You know, it's the issue that uh, both of the sons in the, you know, the par parable of the prodigal son, they both have the same issue, don't they? They misunderstand the father's heart. So that even the son, the prodigal son, after he's gone his wayward direction and he heads and he comes to his senses, heads home. Remember, he's coming home and he's rehearsing his speech and he's thinking, what am I going to say to him? I'm just going to have to be one of your servants. I know I can't be your son anymore. I'm going to have to be one of your hired servants and that'll be enough. Like, I'll go with that. He just does not expect that his father's going to run to him and kiss him and hug him and give him rings on his finger and, and, and shoes on his feet and a robe on his back and throw a massive party for him. Didn't under, just didn't understand the heart of the father, but neither does the elder son who stayed. You never give me anything. It's like the serpent, isn't it? You never give me anything. Father's like, all I have is yours. What are you talking about? The world says that it believes in a God of love, doesn't it? You know, if the world believes in God, it's certainly a God of love. The world doesn't actually believe that. We know that. How do we know that? Doesn't obey him. Hates his commands. Hates his laws. You just call them out. No, you don't. You don't think God's love. You would worship him. You would submit to him. You actually think he keeps you from joy. You think his commands are restrictions that, that stop you from reaching your full potential and the fullness of life in this world. You do not think he's a God of love. Dane Ortland writes in Gentle and Lowly, he says that the fall entrenched in our minds dark thoughts of God, thoughts that are only dug out, dug out 
over multiple exposures to the gospel over many years. Perhaps Satan's greatest victory in your life today is not the sin in which you regularly indulge, but the dark thoughts of God's heart that cause you to go there in the first place and keep you cool towards him in the wake of it. So that leads us to this moment in the sermon. Let, let me, let's expose ourselves to the gospel. If that's how that kind of dark thoughts of God are dug out, we ought to have a clear view of the gospel because we do not want to remain cool towards God because we might have begun to believe a false gospel, close but not quite right. And it goes along the lines of something like this. Jesus had to die so that the Father could love you. Do you get it? Jesus had to die so that the Father could love you. That is that Jesus and his death buys the Father's love. He did not previously love you. That wasn't natural to him. He had to be coerced. He had to be brought to that position. See, Claire Ferguson writes, we, he, we fear that the Father's disposition is the result of persuasion, not personal devotion. Indeed, it may be he is reluctantly gracious since it took the death of Christ to make him so. Do you see, so we like, the Christian might be very confident that Jesus loves them. Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. Like you just, and you can see him on the cross and you go, I know he loves me. But behind that, I'm unsure of the Father's love. Is it the same? Will he love me when I'm not doing so well? When I mess up? John Owen writes, how few of the saints are experimentally, that is experientially, acquainted with this privilege of holding immediate communion with the Father in love. With what anxious, doubtful thoughts do they look upon him? What fears, what questionings are there of his goodwill and kindness? At the best, many think there is no sweetness in him at all towards us but what is purchased at the high price of the blood of Jesus. So now hear God's word then. If, you, if that's a fear, I see Jesus' love, but the Father? Well, here's a verse you should know, John 3, 16. For God so loved the world that he sent his only Son, that whoever would believe in him would not perish, but have everlasting life. It, when you see the Son coming, it is the overflow of the love of God already, the Father. Or hear Jesus pray on the night of his arrest, the night before he will go to the cross and die. John 17, verse 23, Jesus prays, So that the world may know that you sent me and loved them, even as you loved me. Jesus is going to the cross. He's about to die. And his prayer is, I want them to know that you love them. You love them. I, well, I want them to know. Even as you loved me. See the way that the Son is loved. And then see the way that the Father loves you. Well, 1 John 4 verse 8. Heard this earlier. It declares God is love. And that's talking about the Father primarily. Because it says in the next verse... In this, the love of God was made manifest among us that, that God sent his only son into the world. You see, the, the coming of the son is a manifestation of the love of the father. Then the next verse says, he loved us 
and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. So Christ's death on the cross, which, 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 which is in our place and, and bears the wrath that we deserved for all of our sins. It was propitiation, wrath bearing. We see the son's love, of course, but it was the father's love, the overflow of the father's love that sent him there. Michael Reeves begins his, his great book called Delighting in the Trinity like this. He says, God is love. Those three words could hardly be more bouncy. He's an Englishman, so just picture an English accent. They could hardly be more bouncy. They seem lively, lovely, and as warming as a crackling fire. But God is Trinity? No. Hardly the same effect. That just sounds cold and stodgy. The Trinity can be presented as a fusty and irrelevant dogma. But the truth is that God is love because God is Trinity. See, the grounds for our confidence that God is a loving Father actually stretches back even past the cross. It actually stretches back into all of eternity because God has, He didn't ever become a loving Father. He has always and forever eternally been a loving Father because He has always had a Son, the eternally begotten Son, the Lord Jesus. John 17, Jesus describes their relationship in eternity where he says, Father, you loved me before the creation of the world. See that? Before there was a creation of the world, what was there? What was happening? There was a father loving his son. See, see, the revelation of God that he is father, that's not random. You know, some titles, some names are just random. Right, we've got a new puppy in our, in our house and its name is Oreo, right? It's not a biscuit. It's not a delicious biscuit at all. It's a dog. So we're not going to get confused about that. But the, the name doesn't get to the essence of what our puppy is. Not a biscuit. But God is Father. And that actually means something. Believe it or not, he's, we, we call him Father because he is and forever and eternity has been a Father. A loving Father. Michael Reeves again says that insight is like a stick of dynamite in all our thoughts about God. For if before all things God was eternally a father, then this God is an inherently outgoing, life-giving God. He did not give life for the first time when he decided to create. From eternity, he has been life-giving. We are speaking about a God who is most fundamentally, because who is this most fundamentally, because this is what he has been in all of eternity. You, can't, you don't say God has been as fundamentally a ruler because there was a time where there was nothing to rule. It was just God. You don't say that God is fundamentally creator, even. There was a time where there was no creation. He didn't need creation to be complete. But he has always been this, a father, loving his son, always. Michael, he gives this illustration, which is helpful. And so just imagine um, that you get pulled over for speeding, right? Some of you. It does not take an imagination, does it? Ah. But just imagine, go with me, um, and, and you got pulled over for speeding, and there you are, and the policeman comes up to you, but they actually let you off. Imagine that. Now, yeah, that might take some imagination. But they let you off. How do you feel towards that policeman? Well, you, yeah, you're grateful, thankful, even maybe even deeply thankful, 
but you don't love them. No, they don't love them because they're a ruler. Right? They, they, they keep the laws. Right? That, that's their role. That's, who I, that's our relationship. But so it is with God. If he is only primarily considered ruler, if he, and which is what a single person God in, in all of eternity would be like, be, being that there was no one to love and couldn't be therefore a, 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 essentially a father who loves his son, but a ruler or some sort, you could never be confident that he's always going to be that way to you if a father is something he becomes. And therefore, if he's something other, then we actually we would struggle to obey the greatest commandment of all, which is to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind and strength. If we only ever think that God is someone who, like the policeman, wiped our debt and like forgave us all of our sins, we would be thankful, grateful, but if it's more than that and he's a father who makes you his child, then the right response is love. Joe Packer again says, if you want to judge how well a person understands Christianity, find out how much he makes of the thought of being God's child and having God as his father. If this is not the thought that prompts and controls his worship and prayers and his whole outlook on life, it means that he does not understand Christianity very well at all. Our understanding of Christianity cannot be better than our grasp of adoption. So good. Friends, if you're in Christ, the Father has loved you. He has loved you, you, in eternity. You were never an afterthought. Ephesians 1 verse 5, In love He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Christ Jesus. Everything then that comes into your life are providences of a loving Father. To quote an old hymn, This is my Father's world. Oh, let me never forget that though the wrong seems often so strong, God is the ruler yet. This is my Father's world. Why should my heart be sad? The Lord is King. Let the heavens ring. God reigns. Let earth be glad. You live in a fathered world, if, he's, if he indeed he is your father. So then Jesus would say, like, like look at the birds. Yeah, look, at the, look at the lilies of the field. Right? They're not doing anything. They eat, they're clothed. You know who does that? Your father. Your father does that. He is not their father. Well, how much more will he care for you and meet your needs? When you are disciplined, it is not wrath that you're receiving or punishment. When you are his son or daughter, you are receiving discipline from a loving father. Hebrews 12 verse 7. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. He delights in you. He delights in you. I noticed this because I watch a fair bit of sport. And I noticed that they, like more and more it seems like they, they love to cut from when, when, when one of the, the guys does something good, cut to the parents. Let's see the parents picture, you know, the face of the parents. And they're like, you know, especially if the kid's on debut and they kicked a goal and the parents are just like, wow, you know, like just like cheering louder than anyone else in the room. Because they're just so proud, delighting in their child. That's my son. I love him. I love him. He's my son. And the father did that to the Lord Jesus who said, this is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Have you ever known that? That he looks on us as sons that's my son. 
in whom I am, I am well pleased. I think John Owen was surely right. The greatest sorrow and burden you can lay on the Father, the greatest unkindness you can do to him, is not to believe that he loves you. Why would you not? The devil's scheme is to convince you he doesn't. Like in the garden, hold up things right up close to your face so all you can see is that. Maybe he's holding up your sin going, he doesn't love you, look at your sin. And you can't see behind it that there's a son dying on the cross for that sin. Or he's holding up in front of you the misfortunes in your life or the, or the evils that have happened into your life and is so up close, you, you want does he love me? But you can't see beyond it to the providences of God throughout your life. Of course, he loves you. He works all things together for your good. He holds up all kinds of things in, in front of us, doesn't he? The evil's in the world. But better than looking at all of that, look to the sun. Look to the sun on the cross and see behind that obvious stream of love that there is a fountainhead behind it and it is it is the father his love coming to us brothers and sisters let's walk with god and by walking with god i mean walking in the love of the father the unflinching love he never regrets saving you he delights in you he loves you and owen says that when we contemplate his love clearly in our souls our souls could not bear an hour's absence from him. Let me pray. Heavenly Father, we pray to you now. I just want to know by, by your spirit that all those who are yours in this room would know your love. Not just in our heads, but in our hearts, deep in our bones. We are loved children of God. Your commands are good. Your ways are wonderful. They lead to joy. They lead to eternal life. Please help us to walk in that love. Pray in Jesus' name. Amen.